This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to episode 48 of Talking Dirty over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, covered in palm fronds on his T-shirt today. <laughs> and in very cool shades of blue, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome and suntanned horticulturalist. Oh, you notice, my goodness me, who could not catch a little bit of sun? I mean, we're gardeners, we're outside in the open air anyway. You look very rosy cheeks over in Cambridge, <laughs> Miss Gordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson. Yeah, back to 50 doesn't seem to do anything on my skin. I still <laughs> I still get the tan, but when you're out all the time, yeah, it's, it's inevitable. Joining us for some really seasonal floral chat this week on the podcast, we have Lady Ursula Chumley of the very famous Eastern Walled Gardens. Famous first and foremost for your sweet peas, I feel, but there is so much more to talk about. Welcome to the podcast. Do you have any middle names to share? Well, I feel definitely um, over... Um... <laughs> Maybe this is above my pay grade because my only middle name is Anne. <laughs> so I think you guys definitely beat me there. Mind you, I think with Ursula and now with Chumley, maybe if there were, you know, a plethora of middle names, it might be a bit overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Mind so. you, that didn't stop my parents. No. <laughs> Not mine. <laughs> no. Now, Eastern Wall Gardens, I mean, I... I sad to say I haven't been but when you sort of see pictures when you read about it it just feels like there's so much to explore and so much history there so tell us a bit about it. So my husband's family have been there for well our children are the 14th generation to grow up there so Fred's great-grandfather several times bought the manor of Easton in 1592 um, and when he bought it he um has a we have the original conveyance that lists orchards meadows and gardens so we know that there were gardens there since at least that time it went through various incarnations the gardens and then during the first war the house itself was a convalescent home and during the second war it was used as um, an army barracks and subsequently demolished in 1951 because it, it had had um, quite a time the soldiers had let off rounds in the house and then eventually the roof fell in. Um, what we didn't realize till recently is that during the war, you couldn't have um, maintenance on site because when the MOD took your house over, it was a security risk. So any gutters that were blocked just didn't get unblocked for three or four years. So um, the, anyway, the house was in pretty bad state by after the war. So Fred's grandfather pulled it down. He ran a market garden in the gardens for a while and then just literally abandoned it. It was like, Sleeping Beauty when we arrived. And so I started restoring exactly 50 years to the year after it had, it had been, the house had been knocked down. Um, and um, that was in 2001. So I've been working on it ever since. Oh, so now it must be so exciting to see lots of your gardening dreams come true, really, with the sort of plans you started to put in place in the early noughties. It's really exciting and it's very exciting when I have people who used to come on early tours and they'd go round the blue rope and the danger loose masonry signs <laughs> and they were basically going round a field with some walls and, you know, the promise of, of future things. And so to show them round now and say, look, we've done it is really satisfying. 
And Alan, you and I have been lucky enough to go and, and tour some gorgeous gardens, say like the Blickling Hall walled garden, where there is a lot of history there. And it ends up being this sort of juggling act between the preserving the past and recreating that and moving things forward as well. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think one of the things about walled gardens um, of yesteryear is the fantastic height. I don't know whether you, how, how tall are your walls? Uh, well, our walls are actually Tudor walls. So it was probably a Tudor enclosure. So the walls make no sense at all. For, I mean, yeah. we had to, we couldn't call it Eastern Hall Gardens because that would be misleading as if there was a house still there. So the walled gardens is quite a loose term. We have ha-has, we have um, walls that go up, walls that come down. There's the remains of some walled garden, but there is a walled garden that is the main feature, but it's looked at from the house, which is very unusual. So if you stand on the house, you look across the valley and there's this Tudor enclosure with a great big yew tree tunnel going through the middle of it. Lovely. So it's unusual. <laughs> with, with your garden, um, Ursula, the, how much have you been sort of looking at, at the history, looking at any documents or plans or anything and, and trying to, to use that? And how much have you just let your imagination run wild? So we've got these pictures from Country Life that were taken in about 1900, again, about 100 years after we started, before we started, um, and some descriptions from the 1880s in various horticultural journals of what was here uh, in the gardens. But other than that, we only know pre-1805 that it, the gardens were described in 1805 as being ancient. So they missed the landscape movement, so the park runs around the walls, which is makes it very interesting. We live probably the coldest garden in the country, I think. Um, there's, we don't get much wind, but the frost just sits in the valley. And I think a lot of the walling here is to, is to try and give you some growing space, but in this case, it's to try and just keep the frost off everything. So it's, a, it's an interesting place to have chosen to, to put a garden. I can see why the house is there, but um, there's no soil. It's very cold. <laughs> well, yeah, we were chatting on the phone the other day and it, it does sound like you have many, many challenges to overcome. Yes, but it focuses the mind, I think. You know, <laughs> so we can't grow everything. Um, we're on limestone, it's very poor. All our flower beds are raised in some form or another to get just give us a couple of inches extra of growing. But it's very free draining, so it's great for bulbs. It's great for certain annuals, um, and it's wonderful for uh, wildflowers. So we have limestone ter terraces that ran down from the house. And instead of putting the lawn back, I've actually turned all the slopes into wildflower slopes because who would not, faced with just limestone, take the opportunity to grow scabious and knapweed and cowslips and all the clovers and vetches that we have. We have bee orchids there. It's just a wonderful place to, it is all hand weeded, I should say. So it's not it's not an easy challenge, but it is an opportunity for sure. You just touched on something there, Ursula, that I think is so pertinent. And it started with the prairie movement and all these lovely waving grasses and goodness knows what, which I'm not I'm myself am not a great fan of, but that doesn't matter. There are people that are. But I think the one thing you just said that your terraces are hand weeded, which means that their maintenance is quite high, um, much higher than probably people realise, because I've heard somebody come to the garden here and they say, oh, just look at that lovely load of wild things. Nothing. Is, and I just want to say, hold on a minute. Um, that's what I suppose they're supposed to think, that it is natural. Yeah, yeah. And very much influenced by that, the idea of a medieval tapestry yeah. sword, very much, you know, so we add a few things in ourselves, just give it a little bit more oomph. 
Yeah, do you actually sprinkle a few seeds or something different every year or not? Um, we tend to put in perennials that will maybe be thuggish in the border, Iris Siberica, various geranium, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, things like that. They work really well. That's what we do with our meadow. And I mean, we geranium oxyanum, I mean, just one plant next year, you'll have a hundred, you know, it's that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but it does work and it is yeah. lovely. And of course, it, the seedlings being genetically different from their parents, they actually vary in colour, which is quite interesting too. How lovely. I'd love to see that. Yeah. And I mean, this is the thing with something like meadows. I mean, with you, Alan, I know that it's always a, a constant evolution, um, a kind of, or like with all gardening, you often look at it and think, oh, the balance isn't quite right. No one else thinks that. But when it's your own meadow, you're thinking, oh, I wish there was a bit more of one thing or another. Yeah. And I mean, like Ursula, you see, I go around the garden and I think that's got to come out because it's a thug. It can go in the meadow. I mean, that's that it sells my conscience because I don't think I'm throwing anything away. I'm using it or reusing it, which is nice. But no, I mean, somebody came to me the other day, yesterday, in actual fact, and said, can you point me in the direction of the meadow? And I said, well, you're standing next to it. And he said, no, this is not the meadow. I said, yes, it is. You're talking about the cornfield. And the cornfield is annual weeds, the, the, the weeds of yesteryear before we had selective herbicides. Um, and we've got another border that is it's, it's almost it's not fully functioning yet it's a it's a seed mixture sown border because we had um greater bindweed there and so we tried to get rid of that um and i think it's, it appears to have been largely successful i'm not going to say there's nothing there but i, I i've yet to find anything um and i bought a mixture of of seeds um and i can't remember the name of the wretched mixture now but anyway i decided that i would add, um, add to that mixture and so i've added a few extra things like Clark here, for instance, because my grandmother um, always grew Clark here and I loved it. And it's the strange thing is when we first grew it at East Ruston about five years ago, there was a whole generation of gardeners that hadn't encountered it. And yet it was, it was as common as common when I was a child. Everybody, cottage garden, farm, farmhouse garden, everybody grew Clark here. We have exactly the same with Canterbury Bells. We grow lots yes. of Canterbury oh, Bells. Oh, yeah, lovely. Yeah. And, and people come and they go, I remember so-and-so. And then the younger ones are saying, what is that? And yeah, it's, it, it really is. Um, have, you ever, have you ever tried growing Canterbury Bells as a pot plant for bringing in the house? Um, I've read in Christopher Lloyd that he did it, but yeah. somehow with 12 acres, well, you know what it's like. Yes, I do. Yes, <laughs> yes. My, my granny used to do that and I can remember um, she did it without any heat in a funny little old uh, lean-to glass house on the end of her house. And um, I had a job as a child to snip the dead flowers off with, you know, those paper cutting scissors with blunt ends. Um, I used to snip the dead flowers off and you could do that three times and they would flower after again after you've taken the dead heads off. It was a tedious job and they're quite prickly things I seem to remember, but, but I mean, they, they were spectacular as houseplants. And I think as long as you don't let them be fertilised, they just, they'd want to keep going, don't they? So you mustn't let the bees in, I think, or something. And that's, Cam and that's Campanula pyramidalis. Right, okay. Chimney bellflower, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Which, which, which uh, opens and shuts in the garden just like that, but bring it into the house and the flowers will last six weeks. Amazing. Obviously, um, I mentioned that you were associated with sweet peas kind of above all else. And there may be lucky individuals with some of your beautiful little sweet pea tins that you do seeds in these exquisite little arts and crafts type tins. Um, but when did that start? When did the sort of sweet pea adulation and association begin? Well, we, and we, we did the garden restoration really on a wing and a prayer. So um, we have a, a farm and the farm is very heavy clay compared to the limestone in the garden. So we had nine ton tractors, which is not the way to really 
to be renovating a garden, but we had to chop down trees. We had to clear uh, masses of brambles and elder, uh, ragweed, all that kind of thing. So on the basis that you can't um, make an omelet without breaking eggs, we did break quite a few eggs. So while we were doing that, we started to grow a little cutting garden in one corner of the of an area that was sort of sacred, roped it off, uh, you know, wired it off from all the rabbits and the deer and everything. And we started to grow annuals. And one of the, the one thing that we grew was sweet peas. And then we discovered that Fred's grandfather had grown them for market. And then we found an old album from 1900 with a sweet pea decoration all the way around a picture of the old hall. Um, we kind of got carried away from there. One year we grew a hundred varieties, but we're now, we don't grow for exhibition. We grow for a garden decoration and for amateurs to see how we grow them and what would work in their garden. So we're trialing things that we think are the strongest. And what's really fascinating is very little research being done into disease resistant sweet peas because the ex exhibitors have always controlled the environment so much. And those are the sweet peas that very often we've been growing in our garden. And some of them are really quite susceptible to disease. So we, 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 again, when we've been learning, we've stressed our sweet peas by mistake sometimes. And it's quite clear that there are some that have more uh, vigor than others. So we're trying to work out which, which of those are without resorting to sprays and things. Can I ask a question, please? Yes. Um, this, this goes back to a visit to Sissinghurst Castle three years ago on October the 4th. And I was in the cottage garden, which is all bright reds and yellows and oranges and things like that. And I suddenly smelt sweet peas. And I thought, I don't believe it. Not October the 4th, don't be silly. And there behind me was a tripod of um, sweet pea, grandiflora called Henry Eckford, bright orangey yeah. red. Now, to flower as well as that in October, I figured that it should be sown sometime in June. And I've got a couple of packets sitting on my desk waiting to be sown. But nobody ever talks about sowing sweet peas for a late display. Do you do that? Uh, we don't do it for a late display, but we did try last year to see how late we could sow mm. and still get away with some flowers. And we think we sowed, I'm, I had to have to go and look it up. But I have a feeling it was about June the 11th we sowed. And they did flower, as you say, in October. So this is what I'm aiming to do. But the, yeah. the one reason I'm aiming to do it in this garden here is because on the eastern side of the country, our springs can be, well, absolutely stingy and cruel. Mm -hmm. um, but autumns tend to be benign. And quite often yeah. Yeah. now we've got to this climate change stage where, you know, frosts don't begin until almost up to Christmas or even beyond in some gardens. I'm just thinking that let's take advantage of that late season. Now, the only thing against me, of course, is the light levels. And yeah. the light levels drop, it affects yeah, yeah. plant growth, yeah. um, which we all know. But, I mean, I think if I sow them this week, I may be in with a chance. I, I would have a go, definitely. I'm going to. I'm going yeah. to. <laughs> and it was interesting, um, months ago now, when we caught up with the garden designer Tamara Bridge, I know we've been talking about our sweet peas during the first lockdown, because I ended up sowing mine. I'm rubbish at remembering to sow them in sort of November time. It never happens. So I'd sown mine at the beginning of the first lockdown when I had some time on my hands and I'd had the best sweet peas I'd ever had. And she sort of felt like hers had coped better with the heat and the drought having been sown later and grown later than the ones that had actually been sown earlier. And I, I don't know if you experiment with that sort of thing when it, you know, how that might affect the sweet peas health and vigor. Yes, I mean, I was one thing I was just thinking about what Alan said, I would sow a grandiflora sweet pea rather than a Spencer now. They are quicker up to flower. 
um, mm. if you were going to have a late, late flowering, I think. What they really love is that period we had this year of misty mornings. They love that, that misty mornings and then some sunshine on them. So they, so they get plenty of uh, moisture early on. Um, what they don't like is these horrible springs we've been having recently where you get a glorious Easter, say, and then it goes very dull and wet. That, that stress stresses them a lot. We've found that we can ameliorate that by um, putting um, around the cones that we grow them on. We put um, fleece to about this high, and that just gives them a little microclimate to just stabilise the, this heat, cold, hot, cold, you know, because um, if they get going well, they usually just keep going well. And where do you sow them? How do you grow them when you start them off? So we, we grow autumn sown and spring sown. So autumn sown ones we grow in um, root trainers because the whole, the whole key to sweet peas is a, deep, is a big root run. So when you sow them in November, you don't want masses of top growth. So you grow what's called growing them hard. You keep them very cool and you just, once they've germinated, you just want them to grow very slowly because that means that they're just putting more root down and less of all this stuff that ends up on the windowsill when you think, should I cut it off and all that. So, um, so that, that's what you're aiming for really when you sow them. Um, and then the spring sown ones, sometimes they just catch, catch up straight away with the autumn sown ones. And you think, well, what was the point of sowing them in the autumn? <laughs> <laughs> but this year there is about a two week um, difference for us. So, and then as, as Alan said, have a go in you know, May as well, get some late, you know, get some September. September flowers as well. What about the the bit that goes on underground? Because my grandmother, who was, I mean, I probably learnt most of my gardening at Granny's Knee. And I think um, when we used to prepare our trenches, for, we did it for runner beans as well as sweet peas. Mm. And we used to dig down to about a, 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 a spit and a half, take the soil out, and we put well-rotted manure well-rotted muck um, in a about a four-inch layer in the bottom of the trench. And then we used to line it with newspaper. And we always lined it with newspaper because that was said to hold a bit of water. I said to Granny one day, well, we've got to use the Financial Times because it's a better quality paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's rubbish, but never mind. My it's little a better joke. investment. Yes. <laughs> better joke. Well done. <laughs> um, and yes, we used to do that. And um, do you do anything like that as, as elaborate as that today? Uh, so we uh, have definitely put, you know, in fact, weirdly, we've added clay to our soil mm. where the sweet peas are. When, I don't know anybody that's added clay to the soil, but we... <laughs> I yeah, certainly wouldn't. <laughs> it holds moisture and it's fertile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we've done that. Um, we have used uh, manure with varying success um it's sort of i'm not quite sure why we, we've had the, the the soil and the sweet peas tested several times and that they, they do say in our case for reasons i don't quite understand because you think on light soil you would want heavy manure that it doesn't really suit our soil but certainly they're gross feeders so mm. a lot of um uh bloodfish and bone you know plenty of that yeah. in the in the soil mm. um plenty of moisture and um but they, you don't want to overdo it in a pot, for instance. You don't, they, they don't want a massive moisture and then dry out and all that. They just like yeah. a nice state. They're not as easy to grow as people think they are. So if you do grow sweet peas and get successful ones, you should be very proud. <laughs> <laughs> well, they need constancy. I mean, they don't. If, if you, 
if you allow, I mean, I, I'm a great one for, for instance, when we grow some of the plants like Brugmantis in some of our summer pots, I'm a great one for feeding at half strength at every watering because I don't think that they want this boost and then nothing. Mm. And, you know, anything that's grown in a pot, the, the, the nutrients will deplete reasonably quickly. And I think it's up to you to put them back, but you don't need to put them back at full strength or, or, or at a strength that will hurt the plant. And believe it or not, you can overfeed and burn the roots and hurt the plant. So we don't want to do that. So it's better to err on the side of caution and be more constant about giving it. You mentioned earlier that um, you said Spencer sweet peas, Grandiflora sweet peas. I mean, there are these different sort of branches, to use a gardening term, of the of the family. And I know you have some rather delightful sweet peas off camera for us to look at on the video version of the podcast. Yeah, so I have bought the history of the sweet pea in a jug here. <laughs> so, um, I'll just very quickly run you through the original sweet pea that arrived in this country um, in the late 17th century was probably this colorway, but much, much smaller than that. So probably, about, I don't know if you can see that, probably yeah. more like this size. So this one is called Painted Ladies. It's probably the oldest variety that we grow. Um, so the original sweet pea in this colorway, something like this. And really people took not an awful lot of notice for, of it for about a hundred years. Um, it still persisted in cottage gardens because it has wonderful scent. Um, and there was a white one appeared, this pink and white one, painted lady appeared. And then gradually uh, people sort of fluffed to the idea that they were worth looking at again. And by the end of the 19th century, uh, Henry Eckford, who's known as the father of the sweet pea, had really nailed growing sweet peas that grow in much bigger forms. So you can see that these sweet peas are larger than the original. So he called them grandifloras, so in literally big flowers. And um, so that is confusing today because they're not as big as the modern ones. Uh, what then happened was this sweet pea here is the grandmother or the mother of all sweet peas. This is prima donna. So she's a, if for those on the podcast, she's a pale pink um, little sweet pea. And uh, the head gardener at uh, Altrup in Northamptonshire, so Lady Diana's, Princess Diana's old home, um, noticed growing in amongst there was a much bigger sweet pea with wavy petals. And so he called, he called that um, Countess Spencer after his patron. And all most modern sweet peas today do come from um, the Spencer line. And you can tell they're Spencers because they have this very wavy petal. So if you see that, you know you're looking back through sweet pea history, through those three. So you've got Painted Lady, Tiny, the bigger ground of Flora's, which is the uh, prima donna, and then her offspring, which are these very big ones today. Um, so that's, that's a sort of brief run through, but there is people breeding today with other varieties that aren't sweet peas. So this is one called Erewhon, bred by Keith Hammett to Alan, I'm sure you, you yes. know. Yes. Uh, and this is actually a cross. It's still, it's still scented, but it's actually a cross. So um, it's, uh, you know, interesting. And it seems to be very vigorous and disease resistant. So I would recommend that one if you're struggling to grow sweet peas. Um, I've bought various other ones, sort of 
weird ones um, that people <laughs> might not have seen before. Uh, this is very popular in the garden. This is almost black. That's a grandiflora. Look at the color of that. Isn't that fantastic? Amazing. Then Route 66, which is a, a bicolor. Wow. I mean, it's, it's amazing, really, in comparison to that first sweet pea. Isn't it just? The fl voluptuous, flamboyant bloom. Yeah, yeah. And all the scent as well. There's, there's my probably my favourites are the, these middle range ones, which are halfway between a Grandiflora and a Spencer. So they keep all the scent. They've got, you can see the stem is kind of more towards a Grandiflora. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not quite as vigorous, but it's obviously bigger than the, than the Grandifloras. Um, and it, these, these are really good garden plants. So this one's watermelon and kingfisher. And they put in masses of flower and they retain the scent more strongly than some of the Spencers. And watermelon definitely got that kind of watermelon pink going on and Kingfisher, mm -hmm. a beautiful sort of lilac-y blue. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. So it's almost, um, what's the, uh, not neon, the, the ultraviolet, isn't mm. it? Yeah, it's mm. kind of got a luminosity. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously you can, um, you can maybe indulge yourself a little bit by trying lots of peas. I mean, in a small garden, I always find, because it's lovely to see lots en masse, lots of different ones together, and you get all those lovely shades complementing each other. So if you, if you did find yourself restricted to only having to grow a handful, what would be your, your top ones? Well, if you were growing in a pot, I would recommend America, which is white with a red stripe, um, because it doesn't get terribly tall. It's very scented, wonderful to have by the back door um, in a pot. Uh, if you were just doing a few, I mean, I think the semi-grandifloras are wonderful, the kingfisher and watermelon I was just talking about. It's really important to have white in, a, in, a, in an arrangement of sweet peas. This is one called Kathy, which I think is really pretty. But my sort of top favourite at the moment for cutting is this one, which is called Border Beauty. And it's just got this border rim around the, around the sweet pea. Um, and there's, um, there are so many of them. Uh, that I could suggest that would be <laughs> suitable for growing. We've actually selected one ourselves, which is this one, which is called Toffee Apple. And that is proving to be really, really good. Um, it's just a, a red grandiflora, but it's so floriferous, really healthy. Um, so that's sort of available through us. But um, yeah, that one is Toffee Apple. So, so presumably people can come to um, Eastern and they can actually see these sweet peas growing. Yes. I think I'm going to say to people, if anyone that's listening in, uh, to the podcast or even looking at the podcast, I think the most amazing thing to be to do would be to actually visit Easton before you choose which sweet peas you're going to like, because nobody's going to, not, not everybody's going to agree with your choices. Actually, no, nor, absolutely. nor should they, because, you know, this is we're, we're, we're all vastly different people. Um, but I think it would be lovely before they make up their minds and make a mistake to come to Easton and see the, see the sweet peas growing for themselves. Because there's nothing, you, I don't think you can beat actually seeing a plant in the, um, you know, it's like going to the trial beds at the Wisley, um, at Wis RHS Wisley. Um, you look at the plants growing in the trial beds um, and, you know, you can see for yourself which ones you like, which ones you don't like. Whether you'll ever to be, be able to grow them to quite such perfection doesn't matter. Yeah. You, you, can, you can at least choose your plant from a real thing. Well, I went to Wisley to have a look how they were training their sweet peas and they yeah. were doing them on the traditional way, really, for, um, for exhibition. Mm. So on um, rows of poles of 
of uh, bamboo with netting over them, very upright. But to the right, there was a display of carnations and they were in these um, cones of pig wire, sheep wire. And I thought, that would be a better way for us to grow our sweet peas. Yeah. Yeah. So we now grow them in these cones because it, although wigwams look very um, cottagey and, and really romantic in a garden, the most growth you're getting from your sweet peas at the top, the bottom's just a few stems. So to put them on a wigwam doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. So on a wall or on a cone shape, rather than a pointy shape, it will save you a lot of work because they'll keep growing up. The, the, and the other thing is not to use bamboo. It's too wide and it's too smooth for the tendrils to get round. So that's why people use hazel on wigwams because they, they will hold on really nicely because there's a bit of roughness to it that they can get hold of. Um, again, wire is great because it's narrow so they can get their tendrils around it. You mentioned pig netting. Can I just say to you, if you invest in a role of deer netting, it's slightly lighter than pig netting and much easier for gardeners or ladies, especially, or even and just any gardener really, to, 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 to mould into shape. And we make our tubes, if you like to call them that, tubes or cones from, pig, uh, from deer netting, and we hold them in place with four bamboo canes. Um, and that seems to work very, very well, but not just yeah. for peas, for any climbers. That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, because mm. so, um, we do with one great big stake and then just tie yeah. the the yes. shape to, I yeah. think you can, you can do that with, with pig netting because pig netting is slightly more uh, stiffer and stronger, but mm. deer netting is easier to manipulate. That's, that's a really good tip. <laughs> and I've seen at East Ruston Old Vicarage, and I don't know if this is also deer netting or if, they're, if it's P&B netting, but you've got some of those wonderful sort of metal structures, you know, iron-mongered structures for plants to grow up. And then you've sort of surrounded them with netting so that the peas can fully take advantage of the, the structure. Yeah, because the, 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 as Ursula says, you know, the peas, they have a tendril and the tendril needs to, to cling on to something. Um, and, you know, peas are not going to cling on to something if it's a, a foot apart. Mm. So you've got to give them something to adhere to and, and just to make their life easy. And ours too, really. So we cover them with, with some, it's usually bean netting. And I preferably would like to be able to get it in black, but I can't find it in black. And it, it said it because it's it's only available in this kind of luminous, yes, very green. I've been is, everywhere, and it's always fluorescent green. I know, I know. Well, there's a business opportunity for someone. Please give us black P and B netting. And if it could be three inch instead of six inch, that would be yes, even please, better. yes. <laughs> <laughs> we should start a company i think yeah <laughs> the holes are really annoying they're too big years, years ago we sometimes had um access to old fishing nets like dredger nets and those kind of things and although they were very heavy they were very useful um and you could use those um you know and they would be invisible because they're the color of earth almost and you just don't see them yeah um, now, with, uh, with sweet peas, I think one of the recurring problems people have, aside from all the things you've already mentioned, is that horrible mildew. Um, is, is the key to stopping that being having more of a regular water and feed method, you know, of, of looking after them, just being more consistent? A bit like with tomatoes, where you're just creating a whole world of problems if you're not consistent. Um, so the mildew is something that we haven't suffered from an awful lot. We tend to get more virus from aphids. Um, and so 
mildew is probably something we mildew is a sign of stress on the plant as you know too much one than the other um but alan i, I i'm not going to actually say too much about mildew because <laughs> it's not it's not something i've really had to deal with apart from the odd leaf so perhaps alan could be more helpful on that well, I think mildew normally, powdery mildew is normally the, um, happens when we've through lack of irrigation, lack of water. Um, we grow um, a rose in one of our greenhouses um, and it's called Colombian climber, a big fat pink cabbage rose, but it has the most gorgeous, gorgeous scent. And I like to be able to pick a few roses in the dark months, in the winter time and at Christmas time. And we grow it there for that, but it always suffers from mildew because it gets too hot and too dry where it's actually growing. And I think that's the thing with mildew. And it is, the trouble with it is it's a fungal borne disease. And if, when the conditions are right, it can be rife and it can go through the garden like anything. And I mean, roses are not the only plants that get it. Um, other plants get it as well, including sweet peas. The only time that we've ever been bothered by sweet peas, mildew on sweet peas, is really when they've got to the end of their days. And, uh, you know, any good gardener would actually hike them out and, you know, get rid of the, the offending thing instead of letting it gaze at you reproachfully every time you pass. <laughs> um, but occasionally we don't, we hang on, we want those last few flowers. And of course we have to get, uh, take the mildew as well as it, yeah. it's there. Um, and I think the other thing is that, um, is two things about mildew is one is that people in general gardeners do not want to be spraying plants with fungicides or insecticides and all the rest of it any, any more than we have to. Um, and the other thing is that you were talking about trialing varieties, Ursula, and I was just wondering if there are not some varieties that perhaps might be, but you don't suffer from it, so it doesn't matter, but I mean, somebody out there could actually think about this and trial sweet peas to see that there were, see if there are a few that are more mildew resistant than others. And I'm sure that there must be because, you know, plants, they will have a natural barrier, if you like. Some will get it badly and some won't. So we, we spray ours regularly with the garlic wash. Yeah. Because that boosts its immune system as well as um, protects it, sort of puts a film that's sort of supposed to be um, distracting to aphid. I, they still come if they really want to, but it, yeah. it definitely helps them, I think. Ask, uh, Ursula, could I prevail upon you to be generous enough to sh share with everyone how you, how you make a garlic wash? Uh, well, you can make it, but I'm afraid we buy it. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know you yeah, buy you it. can buy it. It's a totally useful thing. I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so we, we would love to be wholly um, organically virtuous, but actually we just buy it. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound quite a lot easier. But, but it is an organic, uh, it's an organic product, presumably. It is an organic product, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing i just like to ask about sweet peas is you do hear this talk about cutting off the tendrils to get them to flower more. Is that a thing that you do or is that more for showing? Um, so it is, it's something that comes from showing that, every, that they, they need all the energy to go into the flower. Um, and it is sort of widely accepted that that is the way to get top quality exhibition peas. We, we don't take the tendrils off, apart from we take the tendrils that are coming out and might attach themselves to the nearby plants because we want them to grow up, that we don't want to get muddled up between which variety we've got in which. So we don't, we don't take the tendrils off, no. And so I'm really, really encouraged to hear that because I always look and feel a bit guilty that I'm not doing it. <laughs> 
I mean, I suppose there's an argument that they are as much as valuable as a leaf in, in that they are, you know, still green. So they are still synthesizing light. And so maybe they, they have their own purpose as well. They are just modified leaves. So, yeah. Mm. Now, I, I know that you're not all, all sweet peas. We might associate you with sweet peas, but there's, a, as we mentioned, a whole lot more going on at Easton. And um and actually, for anyone who is gardening on limestone, just a really interesting opportunity to know what flourishes in your garden. Really, on limestone, um, it is a question of trial and error. Because it's quite dry, we have found that we need to put things else in, in as plugs, and then they will start to seed themselves. But if you just scatter the seed, it, it, you get variable results, because the grasses are do tend to be more vigorous anyway. We use yellow rattle a bit, but it moves itself around. It's an annual, like um, Alan was saying about the um, corn flat, cornfield meadow, it does actually need disturbed ground every year. So it, there is a lot of, depends how much disturbed ground there is for the yellow rattle to fall into and, and to germinate. We have a beautiful little grass called Breeza media, quaking grass. Um, and that again needs to seed itself each year. Um, but sort of away from the meadow, I was thinking about annuals and what's annuals that flower early because biennials can be really good at this time of year, but you've got to think so far ahead about it. And I've just brought with me two or three very unusual, uh, well, I think quite unusual annuals um, that um, you can grow early and will be flowering now before your tender uh, perennials and annuals get going. So this one you can just see here, it's called Gilia Tricola. Oh, yes. I'm excited to see that because I've grown that this year and mine's not Yay. flowering yet. <laughs> and it's a Californian wildflower. If things come from California, they tend to do very well with us randomly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it smells a little musty <laughs> is the best, politest way of putting it. But it seeds itself in poor limestone soil very readily or in gravel if you, if you didn't have limestone soil. I'm sure it would do well in gravel. Um, and it lasts forever in water if you were growing as a cut flower. But you can just see, look inside there, you've got... Mm. Well, do you want to describe what you can see there? For me, I think the, the dark kind of heart of the flower, in contrast yeah. to the wonderful sort of streaked lilac edging to the petals, um, that, that's, that's the, the, the contrast, yeah, then, I think, is what really... It's a little yellow back. And right in here, which you can't really see, that... Do I mean the stamens? I think I do. Yes, are blue. They're light blue all the way around in there. So, so that's one that uh, basically what happened is I went through the Chilterns catalogue and I grew everything that said it was a good cut flower. So this is how I ended up with these. Um, this is another one. Ursula, Ursula, how did you, however, did you take the challenge to get the end of a Chilterns catalogue? Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> I'm still on page 140. Maybe <laughs> um, this is a little Omphalodes, so a little forget-me-not, um, called Linifolia. Um, seeds itself again in gravel very readily. And it has, it's just about going over now, but it has these little smocked flowers, little white smocked flowers. Um, and that is known commonly as the Argentine forget-me-not. And again, that is really pretty airy, light little flower, isn't it? It's got a lovely structure. It's very different if people think of a sort of Omphalodes cherry ingram, um, you know, with all of its yeah. sort of denser blue flowers. This is a completely different aff affair. Yeah, I mean, this is the whole plant because I just, it's got so much of it in the gravel. I just, oh dear, it always knocks itself together as well. 
Hang on, let me pull it. That's the whole plant. You can see it's very, yeah. Very airy. Very airy. It's a lovely, lovely plant. Great for cutting as well. Um, so, and I bought, not, that's just a gypsophila. So different from the gypsophila you get in bunches from the garage. Just much airier again. Mm. Really nice gypsophila. And the final one was, uh, we've gone mad on linarias. I don't know if I can separate those out from the sweet peas. They're sort of locked in a love. <laughs> this is like that horrible thing when you go to a nursery or a garden centre and you're trying to get a plant out and it's... Yes, it's exactly that. Best friends, limpet-like to all the plants next to it. So there is one Julia in there that has escaped. But these, <laughs> these are, this was a mix from Derry Watkins. And so that is uh, Linaria Rhythm and Blues. So the, there's a purple one and a, a deep red one with these little snapdragon flowers. And I love these in, in flower arrangements as well. Those, and they're all really early. Those, that colour combination is exceedingly useful because I've got Linarius in my seed mixture border that I spoke about earlier, and much, many of them are much paler than that. These have obviously been selected to, to retain the, the, the deepness and contrast of the blues and the purples, which I think is really quite something. It elevates it into another level for me. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. those are lovely. So, so those are those are my few early annuals that you know. Obviously, you've got the cornflowers and you know other things, but that those are some unusual ones that we've discovered over over the years. That are good for cutting or just having in the garden. The, the linaria is uh, that is a toad flax because yeah. people yeah. probably get you know that that standard slightly thuggish weedy toad flax that I actually quite like and then my, that might put them off growing all the others and it's a shame because there's there are so many and and I mean I've never seen those ones but they are a beautiful addition to the garden mm. there's, there's one we grow called trion oh, say it I means know, I know the one you mean they look like little parakeets sitting on a perch almost exactly and so the word means three birds yes on a, yes sitting like that and they do they sit around the stem and they're really big they they fly later in the year uh, more more toad flaxes in my life next year I think <laughs> you've inspired me yeah. and you, you mentioned flowers for cutting I mean you do have a, a cutting garden as well and um and obviously you know some of us might just grow those in our garden but you can actually focus your attentions there as well yes I mean a lot of these because our sweet peas have had this problem with virus we've moved them down into the vegetable garden which means that Slowly, the two areas, the cutting garden and the, which we call the pickery and the vegetable garden, have got. Oh, that's much. a lovely name. I love oh, that. Isn't that a great name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend who came round and he said, um, he, he said, uh, Oh, uh, what, what are you growing here? And I said, Well, we, we grow trial cut flowers and we cut flowers so you can choose what you like and you can pick flowers as well. And he said, Oh, sort of pickery. I said, that is the name for it. That's what we're going to call it. Terrific. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm ever lucky enough to have a cut garden, it is 100% having a little sign on it that says the pickery. <laughs> well, there's a lady in New Zealand who's, who's taken the name up as a commercial name for their, um, their cut flower business. And I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> so she did tell us she was doing it. 
And, and clearly from talking about going through the, the Chiltern catalogue, looking for anything that says good cut flower. And if people don't know, they are great at, you know, putting these symbols uh, next to the, the seeds. So they, you know, they've trialled them for cutting and for vase life and stuff. Um, but clearly you're, you're, you love to try something new. So are there things that you're still waiting on that you're trying for the first time this year that you're kind of so excited to see? Um, what have we got this year? Um, COVID hasn't helped us very much. In our, well, our, I tell you what we are waiting on is to see whether the sweet peas that we're trying to breed our own are going to come completely true because it takes years and we're on sort of year eight or nine now to see if we can rogue everything out because a lot of sweet peas want to revert all the time. So they want to go back to that small purple, purple um, original. But there are some that you, you need to fix them. So you need to grow them over and over again, selecting the best ones. So we're hopeful that a very bright pink sweet pea might do it for us this year. <laughs> we've, we've touched on that kind of idea of plant breeding and selection several times over the past few months. And uh, I, I think each time I can never get over how long it takes, that commitment and the organisation as well. Well, for us, it's just we add it into the sweet peas. Don't think too much about it. Um, and in fact... We really need to do with the, the the difficult bit is to remember to cross select one initially that the actual growing of them they just come into the to the system and, and we just go no too many rogues out or you know but yeah it, the the initial remembering to cross things is the is the thing we always forget to do so and how did you pick what to cross did you have you know this this very clear idea of what you wanted or did you just see two plants next to each other and think yes. Yes, that was basically it. Because <laughs> we just don't know what's in their genetic heritage. So it's, um, I'm, there are probably people who do it more technically than we do. And I'm certain Keith Hammett would be horrified to hear me say it like this. But, uh, but yes, we just went, oh, we like those. So we'll put those two together. I do the same with dahlias, in actual fact, but I don't even cross-pollinate them. I just, um, you know, I, I, the parent, if I like the parent, I leave a seed head on it and just to see what we get. Um, you're absolutely right about the genetics because from a black dahlia, a bright yellow single flower comes from the seed, you know, and you just can't. Um, but there are some that I've kept going that I've considered worthy. And most of those have one characteristic that I love in particular, and that's a dark, fairly fern-like leaf because it's more attractive oh. than those great glabrous leaves. Yeah. Um, and um, the other thing is, of course, the, the way the flower holds itself. And the, most of them are single, I have to say, but sometimes the petals have a twist or they have um, pick, 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 pinked edges to the petals or something like that, sort of fimbriated petals. Um, it's interesting to do, and I wish you luck with your sweet pea. And I'm looking forward to hearing about this hopefully bright pink one. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is your dahlia called? I haven't named them. I mean, they're just, I do a general description on a label, which I bury in the pot, and then I, it has an ordinary label as well. If I don't bury it, the visitors to the garden pinch the label, and I, then I completely forget what's in there. You know? <laughs> a, few, a few years ago, I thought that the visitors were pinching all the labels out of our um, alpine beds. They'd all disappeared, and I was like, what, what, what are people going to use these labels for? They've all disappeared. Anyway, my sister-in-law had someone come to clean out her gutters in the clock tower above the uh, above <laughs> the gardens, and it wasn't the visitors at all. It was the jackdaws who'd been painting <laughs> them up on the roof, and all these seed labels all appeared all at once. <laughs> I, I know that one of Alan's dahlias, I, I 
in passing thought looked just like rhubarb and custard but that's probably a name that's been used many a time before but that's definitely it had that get going for it yes it did <laughs> rhubarb and custard tones now <laughs> I, I get the feeling um with with all of your sort of seed catalogue pouring over that flomo is probably a feeling you're quite familiar with this idea of i want to grow that so when we come to this flomo section of the podcast i don't know how hard it was for you to pick uh, one or two things to talk about for me it's always there's always something sometimes it's something brand new that i've never seen before and actually recently there have been loads of things that i've grown in the past and have lost either i've killed them in this garden or i grew them in my parents garden and i've not brought them here and when i went to beth chateau's garden the other week which was just divine her nectarascordum siculum or allium siculum was just they were everywhere and she'd use them you know they'd use them i suppose originally her idea in so many different ways and so many different places I felt so inspired to to get them and try them in different parts of my garden. So that sort of shot up to the top of my wish list um, to to bring Nectarascordums back into my my little tiny garden Um, because they're wonderful. I mean, Alan, you obviously have tons of them. Yeah, but I mean, the one thing I would... uh, um, I would be careful what you wish for, Phil. Yes, (laughs) I would say that. (laughs) Because they can be, uh, in a small space, they can be slightly takeoverish. I think. Uh, to put it politely. Well, um, you're talking to the woman who's currently got a stachus that's taken over about a quarter of my front garden. So I'm obviously a fan of a thuggish plant. Well, they might grow through the stachus, so that might be quite nice. Yes, yeah. it, it would, would look lovely. It'd be great if they did, because the one thing about them, and somebody in the garden actually took me to, my, uh, took me to the tea garden. There's a great clump of them growing in there. They said, what is this? Um, and she said, do you sell it? And I said, I can't sell this in a pot because... Like lots of alliums, the foliage dies and the flowers look wonderful and people won't buy it in a pot because it looks too scruffy. But they love it in the garden when you can disguise that dying foliage. So I would advise you to plant it through this, plant them in the stashes and let them grow yeah. through it because it will mitigate the dying foliage. That's a great idea. The flowers as well, for people who don't know, and I'm sure anyone listening or watching this will know all about their little pendulous bells. But as I haven't grown them for years, but as they go over, don't they kind of go upwards? Yeah, well, they, 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 the seed head forms and, the, and they take on the vertical position like that. Yeah. <laughs> like lots of little pointy hats. <laughs> it's just a plant with so much personality. <laughs> so I need to bring that back into my life. Where are you at with your Flomo, Ursula? I think in general, um, my mother-in-law is from a generation who were very keen on flowering shrubs. And I think we don't grow nearly enough flowering shrubs in our garden. Her garden looks spectacular at the moment because she doesn't matter where she creates a garden, she creates this feeling of intimacy and feeling like you're, you know, you're not walking on the garden, you're in the garden. And a lot of that she does from being very wise and knowing her, her, her flowering shrubs well. And so I think, you know, we have Viburnumopulus, which I think has changed its name again, I think. Um, so the snowball tree, we have lots of lilacs, but it's the next step now. So um, the Colwitzias and um, things like that, that she's got coming with the roses that I think we're missing out. And I think I need to do lots more research on them. Do you have any recommendations on that front, Alan? Oh, yes, gosh. that's great. <laughs> I mean, why did you put me on the spot? <laughs> We're all about putting I, people on the spot on this podcast. Well, well I'm going to say, and at the risk of offending people by being vulgar, um, I'm going to say fuchsias because there are some donkings, hardy fuchsias 
Um, and I'm not talking about those things that, that looks as if they've turned themselves in, inside out. I'm talking about tall growing shrubs that probably four, six feet tall. Um, and they are, because of the climate change, they're becoming quite hardy so that they retain their top growth so that you're actually getting blooms all the way up the plant and not having to start at ground level every, every year. And there are some delightful varieties with terribly small flowers. Now, that sounds perhaps as if it's dull and uninteresting, but it's not. It's exciting because I've got some which they just look like massive little sparks all over the, uh, all over the um, bush. And there's one particular one. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, but it has steely silvery gray leaves, pink new stems and the most vibrant pink, magenta pink, tiny little flowers that you would think wouldn't show up. But they, they're like little sparks, like little dots in a pointless painting, if you like. Um, it looks absolutely stupendous. And I have it growing around my back door. Um, Ursula mentioned growing a sweet pea by your back door to have the scent. Well, I've grown, I've got this fuchsia. It is no scent with that, but it's also grown with um, a, a jasmine, jasmine polyanthemum, which is the tender jasmine that we grow, uh, we have inside in the winter as a pot plant. Um, but mine grows outside, it's quite happy. Um, and the two together just look absolutely marvellous. But, I, you know, thanks to the jasmine, I get the I get a whiff every time I go in and <laughs> go out and come in, which is absolutely lovely. And of course, it, the jasmine being uh, a tender pot plant, so-called tender pot plant, it flowers in June with us outside and not in March or January, February. You know, you see those funny little things trained on a hoop in your florist or your, or your um, garden centre. Um, so, yeah, that's one thing I'm going to recommend as fuchsias, I think. And I've got this image now of visitors, of you opening your back door and visitors like this. Because <laughs> I think a lot of the visitors are too busy at the windows doing this. They had a field day on Sunday because it's so hot. I opened both double doors in the orange room, which we use as a living room, and uh, in the summer. And uh, and I just put a couple of hoes across, just, in other words, saying, don't come in. But everyone was sort of queuing to crane their neck around. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. Perfect. All right. Is there anything I can help you with? <laughs> it's always fun. It's almost like silly schoolboy tricks, you know. <laughs> But talking of fuchsias, before we leave fuchsias, um, I remember going to a National Garden Scheme opening or kind of going to a preview before it at the, you know, it, Alan, the, the little bear shop in yep. uh, on Elm Hill in mm. Norwich, the, the street in Norwich that has like more Tudor buildings than the city of London. Though I think there's a reason for that. Um, but the uh, the bear shop, a, a very small, intimate garden and my kind of garden, because there were lots of little um, Mechanopsis or Papavacambrica coming up through the paving slabs and things. And they had a bench. Uh, with uh, one of those pale pink dainty fuchsias growing up behind so you sat on the bench and you looked up kind of up skirts really of all of those <laughs> pale pink fuchsias and it was absolutely enchanting and I've kind of wanted to do it ever after but I've not had the opportunity yet but it was it really stuck in the mind. It's interesting that you mentioned that garden because for about six to eight years I tended that garden and the reason I tended it was because I had an ant antique shop in Elm Hill in Norwich next to the bear shop. And in those days, the bear shop was a house and it was lived in by Mol Molly and Arnold Kent. And Molly and Arnold made that garden and it was a typical period garden. It was a rose garden. Each little bed had a single block of one color roses and a crazy paving path, which now I think is known as alternative paving. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I took the garden on when Molly died and um, when the house was empty um, before it became a shop. And um, we planted just masses and masses of perennials and things in there with the with the roses. And it, it was it was a lovely, charming little spot right in the middle of the city centre, close to the river, a frost pocket, of course, because, you know, it's low next to the river, as is the Bishop's Garden in Norwich. Yeah. Which is also another one to visit if you're in East Anglia, the Bishop's Garden, which opens regularly for charity. Another, it's those those amazing oases in the city centre, a bit like the Cambridge Botanic Garden, where you'll surround you know sirens go past and you can hear the bustle of traffic, but you're simultaneously just trapped in this magical world of plants and you feel like you're somewhere completely different. Wonderful. So, Alan, we've had flomos of flowering shrubs. We've had flomos of flowering alliums. What is your flomo? Well, my flomo is two things, actually. Um, first of all, it's something to put in the pickery. Uh, thanks to uh -huh. Ursula, Ur <laughs> Ur we now have this new word in our vocabulary. Um, and it's, it is an anemone, um, a florist anemone, like a de decaying type anemone. And it is the most exotic colouring. It's maroon, rich, rich maroon with a blue ring around the centre of the black cone. And it just... It's, it's almost an unreal-looking flower, but I'd love to be able to pick it and mix it with other things. I don't know how hardy it is. I say it's by Flomo. I want to grow it. I am growing it. I planted it in pots and we're going to try, um, try it outside. And I'll leave it over the winter and see what happens. If I never see it again, well, so what? There are other things. It doesn't matter. And my uh, other Flomo is, I mean, I don't know whether you know the, of a hardy diaschia called Diaschia personata, um, which is quite a tall growing plant. It's a, it's a good fairly strong sort of pink, slightly dusky. Um, and I'd had read about the fact that there was an orange variety of this. And I thought that zingy thing with pointed flowers could be jazz up a bunch of dark dahlias that would look rather good. Um, <laughs> and funnily enough, we had a plant fair here on Saturday and Bob Brown from Cotswold Garden Plows, his son Ed brought a lorry load of stuff up and there were two plants of this diaschia with orange flowers and guess who got them? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that was, a, uh, that was a flomo for me and I hope that I'm going to be able to make many more from the cuttings that they produce. Um, can I have one? You can. <laughs> <laughs> I would say can I have one, but I know it won't survive our winter. So. <laughs> well, it should do, Ursula, because it is quite a hardy plant. Um, yeah. If you could give it a little bit of shelter, maybe close by a wall or something like that. But then you, you yeah, well. She has got some walls. If, yeah. I could, if I could give you one, I would, because then <laughs> you lose it. It doesn't feel like a waste of money. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think it's worse when someone gives you a plant and you lose it. <laughs> well, I know what you mean, yeah. Well, I, I gave, I've got my, um, my Royal Bumble Salvia. I've talked about how it sells seeds very, very freely in my garden, which is wonderful. It and I, mine. Does it not? No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you one. I, I keep digging them up. And um, so I have these tiny little salvias. And I was talking to a neighbour and he said, oh, you know, your salvia's got loads of bees on. I'm trying to make my garden more bee friendly. I said, hang on a minute, <laughs> ran off, have a salvia. And uh, I, I felt very good about giving the plant, but I then also felt like I was giving him a burden. So I had to say, I do not expect growing updates. If you kill it, it is absolutely OK. <laughs> talking about bees... There is one plant in our garden that, I mean, I sat having a cup of tea outside the other day 
Um, and there's a plant which is called Mathiosella. It has glaucous foliage and big panicles of hanging green bells that fade to pink. It looks a bit like a small hellebore on steroids because it's quite tall, about four feet tall. Um, it was absolutely covered and smothered with bees. Fortunately, we've got a few young plants of that. And they, I mean, as soon as people see this plant covered in bees, what's that? I want it. <laughs> Yours is in a sunny spot, isn't it? So that's a sun, that's a sun lover. It's a sun lover, yeah. Yeah, we have that with Buddleia alternifolia. Yeah. Um, and once that comes out, everybody wants to know what it is. And then it yeah. goes over and I don't get sink asked again for the rest of the year. <laughs> I mean, it is really scary as a gardener that you every single most plants, I mean, obviously hellebores and things accepted, you have 10 days. So mm -hmm. every single meter of your garden has got to perform maybe three or four times a year. So you've got to have four plants, then you've got to have interest. And you've got 10 days with each one every year to prove themselves. It's, it's quite daunting when you think of what, how hard work borders and things are doing, isn't it? Yeah. It, is, it is very hard work, but for small gardeners, I think one of the things that you could do, and it, which is a bit like oh, you mentioned hellebores. Hellebores, they're not actually um, their petals. They're kind of bracteose petals, so they have um, a leaf structure, which makes them last such a long time. Um, there's a primula called Francisca, and it does exactly the same thing. It's green, and it's got a bit of yellow in it as well, but it, it's like a green polyanthus. Um, and that lasts right until July because the petals are bracteos in texture. And, and there's the same with Mathiosella. Again, they're bracteos in texture. And although the green fades from the freshness of lime green to pink, you know, they do have this last ability. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's about people doing a bit of research, isn't it, really? And in, in general, finding out, visiting other gardeners, uh, other gardens. But you're absolutely right. I mean, 10 days to two weeks is about the limit of a... Um, especially with hot sun like we've had just recently. Yeah. And then as a gardener, if you're opening your garden, you've got to remember all of those names so that when people ask you, what is <laughs> well, that plant? I think, you can I think the, the useful thing is that if you use them enough, you, you, you actually know them. You, you can recall the names. I mean, I occasionally have, the, have a blank moment when I feel uh, about two inches tall because I'm, I'm talking about something that I should know about and I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, I never mind. That happens to everybody. We've all been I'm there. I'm very impressed, Alan, because I used to think that I knew all the names of everything. <laughs> and I realised, and I knew 500 plant names, I could recall them all. And when I knew over a thousand, I can't remember any of them now. So I have, <laughs> I have to revisit every single season because snowdrop season comes around and people say to me, yeah. yeah what are the different, different snowdrops you've got? I have no idea. <laughs> I've got to relearn it all every single year. Yeah, but that's good, though. And I think you retain a little bit from each season, though. Yes, for sure. A little bit more each year. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ursula. It's been such a treat. Good luck with your fluorescent pink pea. And, thank you so and much. actually, your, your kind of official sweet pea season, I think, starts the day that this podcast hits the uh, hits the airwaves, hits the world. So, um, so what exactly does that mean? Are your kind of sweet pea areas then available for public view? Well, so we used to have sweet pea week um, pre-COVID, but sweet pea season allows we we've extended our opening hours to five days a week so that people can come and more relax. The garden can absorb a couple of hundred people, but when we were getting maybe a thousand people on that first Sunday, it was too much. So by saying, actually, the sweet peas are here from June the 23rd onwards, and you'll either catch them as they come up to their peak, at their peak, or you know when they're, you can see what, what everything's been doing. So we have 
two lots of sweet peas, one a spring sown, as I said, and one autumn sown. So the current autumn sown batch are about four foot high and they're flowering. And the uh, spring sown are shorter and just starting to flower. So I would think it'll be a couple of weeks before they're right at the top of the, the drums. But there's just so much, you know, you'll catch the roses if you come earlier. So it's a sort of, you know, uh, a, a playoff of what you come and see. And if you come later, you'll get the um, bigger displays and the herbaceous borders and mixed borders and things like that. So yeah. just come and see us at any time of year, really. We aim yeah. to have colour all year. So. Well, a great garden. I think you could go every week and you'd always be seeing new things. I certainly find that at Alan's. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the beauty of a garden. I mean, the seasons change and you get another set of plants and you, or you get a plant at a different stage. And that's the reason I want to grow Henry Eckford. I'm going off to sow it right now. <laughs> well thank you so much for having me on it's been really good fun yeah oh, nice to talk to you ursula have a lovely Love day happy gardening Bye-bye. bye bye hey 4d's here just to say thank you so much for listening to talking dirty you are now officially our favorite person if you really liked it please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant loving mayhem next week and as you're our new favorite person we don't want you to miss out if you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. <laughs>